Chapter 13 Becoming ANC Does one have to have gone to prison on Robben Island or into exile in Lusaka to understand and become part of the ANC? Those who say Cyril is not ANC must think twice. Ramaphosa found a home in the ANC and he worked for it. Bantu Holomisa Kosatu was widely and immediately recognized by liberation movement exiles as a triumph. Resolutions adopted at the inaugural Congress, including demands for the withdrawal of troops from townships, the release of political prisoners, the unbanning of illegal movements and parties, and the imposition of economic sanctions by other countries, were overtly political and promised to place the Federation squarely in the ANC camp. Yet suspicion and misunderstanding clouded Ramaphosa's relationship with the movement's Lusaka headquarters. When exiles returned at the end of the decade, the notion that Cyril had become ANC too late, or was rather slow to become an ANC supporter, became a throwaway insult used to tarnish his reputation and that of many other trade unionists and UDF activists. Certain aspects of Ramaphosa's personal history laid him open to this charge. Kuzas Piroshaw Kame viewed his defection to Kosatu in quite cynical terms, for example, as an effort to get onto the winning side by gravitating to the most powerful of the labor union forces. The same charge could easily be leveled at his move to the ANC. Moreover, Cyril was never imprisoned on Robben Island but rather detained in solitary confinement in a variety of prisons and police stations around Johannesburg and Pretoria. A term on Robben Island was not a surefire route to becoming an ANC supporter, of course. Current National Executive Member Saki Makozoman remarks, I spent five years on Robben Island and I didn't join the ANC. There were things about the ANC I did not like. But for Cyril, his inability to develop relationships and networks with other political prisoners hindered his later acceptance in the movement. A third and politically more sensitive problem was simply an accident of birth. Ramaphosa's family came from a part of South Africa in which the ANC had almost no historical foothold, and he grew up in a Soweto in which the liberation movement had become a shadowy and insubstantial presence. His early adoption of black consciousness ideas and his much later conversion to the value of the Freedom Charter were quite unremarkable for someone with this background. The strongest advocate of the ANC in the NUM, Elijah Barai, hailed from Craddock in the Eastern Cape. Barai's long-standing affiliation demonstrated the historical entrenchment as well as regional character of the ANC. By contrast, Ramaphosa's affiliation to black consciousness reflected the geographical spread of black consciousness thinking across elite black schools and university campuses in the early 1970s. One danger posed by criticism of an activist's late conversion to the ANC is evident in Barney Pajana's assertion that, despite his prominence in black consciousness politics in the 1970s, I was never not ANC. By this, Pajana presumably means to indicate that as a result of the accident of his birth in the Eastern Cape and his education at the ANC stronghold of the University of Fort Hare, he was always engaged with the ANC's political and intellectual traditions even when he marched under a black consciousness banner. Pajana's statement is, however, just a short step away from the divisive claim that only those who come from an area with an unbroken history of ANC organization, in effect selected regions of the Eastern Cape, can be truly or deeply ANC people. Without an extended history of immersion in ANC ideas and lacking a substantial network of ANC contacts, Ramaphosa's embrace of the liberation movement was inevitably doctrinal and political rather than emotional. Ishmael Mkabela met Cyril in early 1986 in Jabalani Flats, Soweto, where Cyril was then living. Ramaphosa said to him, quite unexpectedly, Why don't you join the ANC? 
Nkabela had already dismissed this possibility despite being courted with a Christmas card from Oliver Tambo in Lusaka, and he asked Ramaphosa what he saw in the movement. Referring to the Freedom Charter, Cyril replied, They have a progressive document. What else? demanded Nkabela. That's all. In the second half of the 1980s, Ramaphosa's interaction with the ANC began to increase in frequency and intensity. This and the next chapter chart his startling rise to prominence in an ANC whose senior members often continued to resent his growing power. By 1988 he had been recruited to membership of an important underground ANC executive. By 1990 he was the most prominent spokesman for the internal ANC and head of the reception committee for released political prisoners. In 1991, he was elected by a landslide as Secretary-General of the ANC and chosen to lead the movement's negotiations with the National Party. Ramaphosa soon discovered that the ANC was no monolith and that the unifying language of struggle concealed myriad differences over the appropriate strategy to defeat apartheid. There was equally little consensus over the character of the society that was to replace it. Cyril was to engage and befriend one fiery leftist intellectual after another, first Govan Mbeki, then Mac Maharaj, and finally Joe Slovo and Chris Harney. These were all significant figures in the South African Communist Party, and the party was to become an important factor in Cyril's political rise. Very soon he would also enjoy a close relationship with a man who was to emerge as the ANC's leader, Nelson Mandela. Kusatu's relationship with the exile movement seemed at first to be blessed by higher powers. A few days after the December 1985 launch of Kusatu, its leadership had the opportunity to meet informally with exile leaders at a World Council of Churches forum being held fortuitously in Harare. The newly elected office holders of Kusatu, and Cyril who attended despite not holding any formal position in the federation, met with two exile power brokers who were later to become his close political allies, Mac Maharaj and Joe Slovo. The meeting was cordial and produced a statement committing the parties to working together. It was a clear signal to remaining sceptics of one union, one industry, that the ANC was determined to see Kosatu succeed. Maharaj and Slovo accepted that Kosatu was a specialised vehicle for class politics and that it should therefore possess organisational autonomy from the ANC. In February 1986, there was the first official meeting in Lusaka between the new COSATU office holders and the Tripartite Alliance of the ANC, SACP and SACTU. The alliance delegation was heavyweight, including unchallenged ANC exile leader Oliver Tambo, Joe Slover and the MK firebrand Chris Harney. The Kosatu delegates included not only two ANC loyalists, Sidney Mufamadi and Liz Picker from the Food and Allied Workers Union, but also supporters of Orthodox Union autonomy in the person of Jay Naidu and Max Chope. Ramaphosa was the wildcard, neither a Fosatu workerist nor an office holder of the Federation, and it soon became clear that he was determined to resist certain ANC demands. The meeting agreed that Kosatu was the legitimate representative of organised workers within South Africa. At the same time, SACTU was fighting a rearguard battle to maintain its existence and legacy in the face of the new federation, and it was agreed that contradiction between the two federations should be avoided. In the course of negotiations, moreover, deeper underlying differences between Kosatu and the ANC were exposed. The exile leadership had become accustomed to a corrupted form of democratic centralist decision-making and to the infiltration and control of mass organizations in the service of wider liberation goals. The ANC leadership believed it was in the best position to determine when and in what manner a union federation should act politically and what its goals should be. At the meeting, Kosatu's General Secretary, Jay Naidu, reiterated the orthodox understanding of union independence from political control. Kosatu stood for accountability to the shop floor, freedom of debate and leadership selection through a free ballot. 
The union had developed codes of conduct to prevent unfair labelling or smearing of participants in debate, and it systematically encouraged worker education so that such a debate could include the widest possible range of participants. Such a federation, Naidu explained with Ramaphosa's support, could not simply be subordinated to the ANC's political project. Beneath the clash of principles, there was also a more pragmatic struggle over financial autonomy. SACTU would not allow ACASAR to take over, in part to protect its leaders' bank accounts and checkbooks. While there were leaders of great integrity in SACTU, rumours of impropriety surrounded several of its stalwarts. Ramaphosa had already clashed with SACTU over finances as early as December 1983, while NUM was still part of CUSA, when he refused demands that he channel funds sourced from the British NUM through SACTU offices. By 1986, Cyril had developed a broad and powerful funding base, largely through Scandinavian Mine Workers' Federations, and he had no intention of ceding these monies to the ANC. Neither, indeed, did he intend to let Kosatu control NUM's purse strings. Ramaphosa also believed that his key task was to secure the institutional and political power of his sector of organized workers. He did not participate very much in the UDF, except within Soweto, and he did not believe that NUM should become affiliated to it. When the UDF was formed in 1983, I was deeply involved in organizing mine workers, and the urban centers and so forth were not my terrain. It was the mine compounds. By remote connection, yes, one had links to the UDF, but not directly. The poor relations between Ramaphosa and the exile ANC also had a personal dimension. He was now the most prominent of the many accomplished trade union leaders who emerged in the post-Bihan era. For 1980s exiles in Lusaka, frustrated by their inability to make any difference on the ground in South Africa, Ramaphosa's exploits had an electrifying effect. As NUM's membership soared and the union began to take on the mining houses in strike action and in the media, everybody was giddy and fascinated by Cyril. He both captivated and unsettled exile leaders more than other talented organisers such as Jay Naidu and Alec Irwin. He was not just a charismatic and exceptionally accomplished leader of the most powerful trade union South Africa had ever seen. He was also a black African. In consequence, he inevitably became the most pursued target of liberation movement recruiters. The SACP in particular, with its focus on the organization of workers, saw Ramaphosa as an indispensable ally. Members of the ANC leadership also feared him as a potential rival. If the ANC and the South African Communist Party were exceptionally keen to recruit him to their circles of influence, for most of the 1980s the question of actually joining these organizations did not arise. Prominent leaders were not expected to join the underground ANC because this would expose them to harassment and detention. For his part, Ramaphosa was now keen to engage closely with the ANC. He later recalled that we would go for briefings to Lusaka, and we would brief them on the situation. And the NEC would discuss the matter and decide this was a new campaign that had to be launched. We were not really the foot soldiers as such, but we knew that the movement in exile, its leadership and membership, was playing an important role. Ramaphosa captures a growing emotional affiliation to the Lusaka leadership when he observes that there was a sense that that is where the heart of the ANC is. Much as we were involved in COSATU and the unions and the UDF, we knew that we were executing an important task. But we always felt that we wanted to execute that task within the policy guidelines and parameters set out by the movement outside. So in terms of inspiration, in terms of encouragement, the movement outside was very important. When later asked by an interviewer if Lusaka issued orders, Cyril replied, Yeah, there were some. Those were the days we would scrutinize the January the 8th ANC annual statements very closely and carefully to watch out for calls being made on us. We always recognized that 
that was where the leadership of the movement really resided. Much as we were leaders in our own organizations and sectors, we recognized and accepted that leadership was outside. Yet there was widespread skepticism among UDF and COSATU leaders about the ability of the ANC leadership to plan domestic political action coherently. As UDF leader Vali Musa reported his own experience, domestic leaders would travel to Lusaka and set out their concerns about the effective stalemate that was developing on the ground. More often than not, they were simply sent back with the injunction to just get on with the revolution. There were substantial elements within the exile leadership trapped within a crude paradigm of military struggle. Others were die-hard communists, strongly affiliated to the Soviet model. While some bolder thinkers, such as Tabo Mbeki, were arguing coherently that negotiation with business and their regime now had a place, their initiatives were viewed with great unease by their comrades. The ANC, moreover, had more than one center of power. The exile ANC, with its headquarters in Lusaka, was led by Oliver Tambo. On the other hand, the Robben Island leadership contained significant figures such as Nelson Mandela, Governor Mbeki and Walter Sisulu. There was also a fragmentary underground ANC, together with what was loosely called the internal leadership, trade union, church and community leaders who were sometimes but not always affiliated to the UDF. By 1987, the question, who is the ANC inside the country, was being ferociously contested within the UDF and COSATU. According to then COSATU General Secretary Jay Naidu, such argument was becoming so fierce as to be debilitating. Some activists demanded that unions be fully subordinated to the exile ANC. But most COSATU leaders believed that military and labor struggles should be kept apart. In an attempt to promote reconciliation, the COSATU executive invited young firebrand populist Peter Mokaba to speak at the Federation's 1987 Congress. In Naidu's recollection, Mokaba abused his right to speak by deliberately exacerbating political divisions and threatening the labor movement's hard-won unity. Meanwhile, the 1987 mine workers' strike transformed Ramaphosa's position from being a significant outsider's to becoming a central actor in the battle to make the country ungovernable. By electing Nelson Mandela as its honorary life president, the NUM demonstrated clearly where its sympathies lay. It also adopted the Freedom Charter as an adjunct to its constitution, the first union in the country to do so. This was still not enough for Lusaka. Some exiles betrayed their limited understanding of the realities of industrial action by criticizing Ramaphosa's too early demobilization of the workers that ended the 1987 mine workers' strike. More astute exiles were excited, almost despite themselves, by what they saw as a phenomenal development. Concern correspondingly grew that such a captivating figure was not fully under the exile movement's control. As a consequence, the SACP stepped up its use of entryist techniques to infiltrate its own underground activists into the union's leadership. Cyril's first direct involvement with domestic ANC structures resulted from his bold 1986 decision that NUM would directly support newly released Robben Island prisoners. When young intellectual Khalema Motlani was released, NUM immediately appointed him head of the union's education department. According to the historian of the NUM, Motlanti accomplished little in this role, leaving posts unfilled and funds raised by Cyril for this purpose unspent, a criticism firmly rejected as unfounded by Motlanti's biographer. Motlanti was an intellectual whose Robben Island mentor, Govan Mbeki, had impressed on him the need to organize in the labor-sending villages so that mine workers would arrive at the compounds already politicized and conscious of their class interests. Motlanti's attention was probably focused more directly on fulfilling the instructions Mbeki had given him when he left prison to prepare for a new underground internal structure of the ANC. On the 5th of November 1987, Governor Mbeki was himself released from the island. He had been sentenced to life imprisonment together with fellow legends Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu and Raymond Mtlaba 
in the 1964 Ravonia trial. Known as Umgov, Mbeki was an unrelenting advocate of communism and a fierce critic of what he viewed as Mandela's woolly thinking and hazy anti-socialist tendencies. His key project was to deepen the dominance of the SACP over the ANC's political strategy and to intensify armed struggle. As a major intellectual force on the island, he spawned protégés and admirers as prolifically as Mandela himself. As the two equally grand and stubborn men aged together over two decades of incarceration, they argued furiously and fruitlessly and ultimately passed many years of close proximity in stony silence. Mandela's release on the 5th of November was in some respects a trial run for the release of other political prisoners. When the London Times reported in August that the South African government is considering the imminent release of an aging black guerrilla leader from prison, many diplomats believed that President Boerta was exploring ways of freeing the African National Congress leader Nelson Mandela. Prior to Mbeki's release, Nelson Mandela demanded that Mbeki should keep a low political profile in order to facilitate the rapid freeing of other prisoners. This was always wishful thinking, given the tireless activist's personality. The Lusaka ANC made a virtue out of necessity, observing hopefully that Comrade Mbeki emerged today after 23 years in the racist prisons, unbowed and unbroken, a living legend in the minds of our people. His release will significantly enrich and augment the leadership of the democratic forces as a whole, and as the fight continues till all are released, we say, let him speak to the people. Mbeki took up this challenge with predictable alacrity. In his own eyes, and those of many of his followers, he was the most authoritative intellectual in the ANC with the most powerful scientific command of its role and future. His protégé, Halema Motlante, had already made preparations for him to begin work. He was soon to be joined by the redoubtable Harry Guala, ANC leader from the Natal Midlands, who was released from prison in 1988. Cyril had offered Motlante employment at NUM, and now he was among the first people to visit Umgov in Port Elizabeth on his release. When Harry Guala was freed, Num provided him with a car and money. Mbeki was inevitably a magnet for local activists who were keen to hear the authentic voice of the ANC. Contrary to Mandela's expectations, he did not confine his activity to the Eastern Cape. Soon he expanded into Natal, where he connected with a variety of other underground activists. The union was in effect bankrolling Governor Mbeki's self-appointed task of creating a new underground structure. Ramaphosa would use every possible opportunity to visit Mbeki and on Allen's account he soon took up a senior position in the underground ANC network which the old man and Mutlanti were creating. In this capacity he became a prominent spokesman for what some activists now considered the internal leadership of the struggle. The significance of such designations was, however, quite unclear, given that unanswered and perhaps unanswerable questions hung in the air. Where is the real ANC? And who are its true leaders? Confusion deepened when the exile leadership created a quite distinct alternative underground ANC structure in the country. This secret project went by the name of Operation Vulindlela, Open the Way, but it has become more commonly known as just Operation Vula. Its central rationale, spelt out towards the end of 1986, was that the ANC needed to establish from scratch an internal leadership. Ivan Pele, who was chosen by Joe Slovo to administer Vula in Lusaka, observed that progress inside the country far outstripped our capacity and that the ANC needed to make a qualitative shift to stay on top of the situation. South Africa faced nothing less than an internal revolution and we were not there to take full advantage of it. Vula was not an attempt to plant a new leadership, Pelé emphasized, but rather to shape internal leaders' key decisions. What later made Vula controversial was that it was hatched very much in secret. 
every effort was made to ensure that its existence was not leaked. Even very senior members of the ANC, such as Thabo Mbeki and Mkonto Wesizwe head Joe Modise, were not informed of its existence. Some senior cadres in Lusaka would have insisted on participating if they'd known about it, and this would have left the project vulnerable to the inefficiency and poor security that dogged routine ANC operations. Equally controversially, Oliver Tambo allowed Vula's directors, Joe Slover and Mac Marat, to handpick whatever ANC and MK operatives they thought best equipped for it. Inevitably, Vula was dominated by the South African Communist Party because the party recruited the best and brightest ANC cadres. This left it open to later accusations that it was a communist front. Vula recruits were certainly an elite and members such as Mo Sheikh, Pravin Gordon, Ivan Pele, Dipak Patel, Sipiwe Nyanda, Ronnie Casserles and Charles Ngakula were to go on to have illustrious, if sometimes controversial, careers. The operational head of Vula was the former Robben Islander everyone knew as Mac. Satyandrunath Ragunan Mac Maharaj spent 12 years on the island from 1964 to 1976 after enduring unimaginable torture ahead of his trial. Whereas Khalema Motlante and Harry Gwala had followed Governor Mbeki on Robben Island, Maharaj was unmistakably Nelson Mandela's protégé. There is an interesting tale that illuminates something of the character of both men. When Mac was prisoner on Robben Island, Mandela took him under his wing and determined, in the manner of the island, that he should be inducted into the wisdom of the ANC. Every day during a rest period, the two men would break from work in the quarry and sit down together among the rocks. Mandela would place himself on a large boulder and Maharaj would occupy a far smaller rock nearby. The older man would talk about his philosophy of politics and offer up his famous homespun wisdom, advising Maharaj, for example, that the Afrikaner is best talked to in Afrikaans. Only if you learn his language... Will he listen to what you have to say? Mac eventually tired of sitting always on the smaller stone. One day, when the time came for them to break from work, he ran as fast as he could to their meeting place and planted himself on the larger boulder. A few minutes later, Mandela arrived, only to find Mac sitting in his place. He observed the small rock, his face quite expressionless. With an almost imperceptible turning of his head, he scanned the area for another place to sit. Without comment, he then walked over to where Maharaj was sitting and stood over him. He began to talk in the normal way and remained on his feet for the whole session. The next day, a resigned Mac took up his usual place on the smaller stone. After his release from the island, Maharaj escaped from house arrest in 1977 and made his way to London and then to Lusaka. He was a very clever man indeed, and he rose relentlessly through the ranks of the ANC and the SACP. By the early 1980s, he was a key thinker in the SACP's Politburo and an important leader of the ANC's senior executive instrument, the Politico-Military Council, or PMC. Among his PMC responsibilities was tracking everything that was going on at home. He saw trade unions as vital vehicles for collective organization. Through interaction with union leaders, including Parashor Kame at Kusa, he followed the rise of Cyril very closely. Maharaj was unusually sympathetic to the orthodox conception of unionization, arguing that these people should not have been labeled economistic. They simply needed space, and beneath the surface they had the right tactical position. At the same time, he also remained partially persuaded by SACTU's project of building politically affiliated unions. He much appreciated Ramaphosa's finely balanced organizational approach to the dilemma this created. In late 1988, in the first stage of Vula, Maharaj and Sipiwe Nyanda were infiltrated into South Africa. Within two years, there were 12, mostly middle-ranking, Vula operatives on the ground. 
The presence of Maharaj had major implications for Ramaphosa, who had already developed strong relations with Governor Mbeki's internal structure. Given the organizational character of the ANC, and the fear that penetration by South African spies would expose agents to capture, there were at any time quite a number of clandestine external units within South Africa unaware of each other's presence. Quite often they bumped into each other unexpectedly. Now, however, there were two substantial parallel structures competing for influence, and their heads, Mac Maharaj and Governor Mbeki, inevitably clashed. Ramaphosa was in regular touch with both of them. Using secure Vula communications, Maharaj alerted Oliver Tambo in Lusaka to Mbeki's unauthorized and, in his view, imprudent initiatives. Mbeki was in fact behaving properly in the sense that he was reporting back to Tambo on his activities. But in Maharaj's view, he was inadvertently creating a security risk. There is always a tendency for centralized structure to emerge, with everyone attracted to a magnet figure like Mbeki. But this was an invitation to another Ravonia. Everyone who went to see Mbeki, everyone surrounding him, was exposed. Consequently, Tambo nudged Mbeki to confine his activities henceforth to the Port Elizabeth area, an instruction he largely ignored. By this time, Ramaphosa had adopted Governor Mbeki's assumption that apartheid would necessarily be ended by the violent overthrow of the regime. The historian of the NUM reports that Cyril had come to believe that there would be a major, most probably violent confrontation between the ANC and the South African government, followed by a society created according to ANC values. As late as 1989, we never envisaged a negotiated settlement, and he knew no one that did. As we shall see, this is not entirely consistent with Ramaphosa's other political actions in 1989, for example, in helping to negotiate the end of the Soweto rent and rates boycott. He was not exactly hedging his bets, but he certainly refused to put all his political eggs into the basket of insurrection. Ramaphosa probably went along with the conventional wisdom that Tambo, and not Mandela, was the natural leader of the ANC. Tambo was certainly the uncontested leader of the exile ANC, and those around him mostly supposed that he should become the movement's leader in a post-struggle era. Ramaphosa observed that people spent a long time with OR. They loved him. They adored him. He had led the movement very well and kept them together and was a very compassionate person and very clear politically, very democratic also in his way of doing things. So that is the president that they loved. Madiba they had a great feeling for because he was in prison and he was the embodiment of what the movement stood for. It was only when Madiba came out that some people realized the important role that he could play. Uncertainty about Mandela's suitability for leadership was encouraged by the 1988 revelation that he had been negotiating from his prison rooms with the regime. Now he proposed to meet with the great enemy, President P.W. Buerta. Ramaphosa found out about these initiatives through the media. He could neither understand nor accept Mandela's reasoning. He knew they were a long way from defeating the National Party, but we also realized that they were in deep crisis and there was a stalemate of sorts. They couldn't, even with their emergencies, smash us completely. But that was the time that international sanctions were intensifying as well, so the general and overall approach was that we smash them. In such circumstances, Mandela's overtures were alarming. At first, it was like a bolt from the blue. In the ANC's democratic culture, you just dare not go and talk to the other side without getting a mandate. That, for us, was not the time when we thought there would be negotiations, we were going to smash the apartheid state to smithereens. The country was being made ungovernable. There were strikes all over, and on an incremental basis we thought all this was leading up to the hour of decision. And here was Madiba negotiating. At the centre of the controversy was a memorandum that Mandela had written in preparation for his meeting with P.W. Buerta. Mandela gave copies of the document to his lawyer, 
and to Dulla Omar during a prison visit. In ever-widening circles, copies spread to incredulous leaders including Kosati boss Jay Naidu, UDF leader Vali Musa, Noms Khalema Motlante and, of course, Governor Mbeki. When Maharaj met up with Vali Musa in Rosebank, Johannesburg, soon after Musa had seen the memorandum, the UDF activist greeted Maharaj with the words, Did you hear that Madiba is selling out? Maharaj sat down patiently with Musa and together they considered the document Mandela had presented to the state president before their meeting on the 5th of July 1989. Maharaj took the younger man through it, line by line, until Musa was persuaded that Mandela was in fact acting appropriately. The document was a quite masterful statement of the need for a negotiated settlement. Mandela had taken exceptional care to insist that he was not able to negotiate on behalf of the exile ANC. I am a loyal and disciplined member of the ANC. My political loyalty is owed primarily, if not exclusively, to this organization and particularly to our Lusaka headquarters, where the official leadership is stationed and from where our affairs are directed. In the normal course of events, I would put my views to the organization first, and if these views were accepted, the organization would then decide on who were the best qualified members to handle the matter on its behalf, and on exactly when to make the move. But in the current circumstances, I cannot follow this course, and this is the only reason why I am acting on my own initiative, in the hope that the organization will in due course endorse my action. I must stress that no prisoner, irrespective of his status or influence, can conduct negotiations of this nature from prison. In our special situation, negotiation on political matters is literally a matter of life and death, which requires to be handled by the organization itself through its appointed representatives. The step I am taking should, therefore, not be seen as the beginning of actual negotiations between the government and the ANC. Once Musa was persuaded that Mandela had not been seduced into improper collaboration, the two men quickly assessed how to limit the damage. Musa was a member of the same underground committee as J. Naidu, and the next morning he was able to appraise the Kusatu leader of Maharaj's analysis. Meanwhile, the Vula boss contacted Harry Gwala, another potential flashpoint and antagonist of Mandela, and tried to assuage his concerns. The two men also sought to assemble and destroy all copies of the memorandum for fear it might cause wider confusion. Fortunately, Vula was soon able to establish reliable communications with Mandela and through its secure link with Lusaka to keep Tambo abreast of his negotiations. Mandela argued that his negotiations were not secret but merely confidential. Through the Vula channel, Tambo was correspondingly able to confirm that Mandela was not breaching the collective decision-making of the movement, so long as he reported back to Lusaka on the content of the confidential deliberations. Ultimately, it was the bond of trust and mutual respect between Mandela and Tambo, two men who were in effect also competitors for the presidency of the movement, that allowed this difficult period of interaction with the regime to be managed. Governor Mbeki, nevertheless, took an uncompromising line. Mandela's contact with the regime was simply unmandated. He was rumored to have characterized Mandela as a sellout, and he instructed cadres not to talk to him. This position was not altogether unreasonable, given that the South African National Intelligence Service was indeed trying to engineer a split between the domestic and exile wings of the ANC. Cyril also remained unconvinced by Maharaja's explanation, recalling that we did have quite serious debates with Mac because he always had faith in Madiba's visionary approach on issues. At that time I thought it was just blind faith because he didn't know what the hell was happening and he just said, no, he thinks Madiba is doing the right thing because he has finally arrived at a conclusion that the only way in which we can take this country forward is for negotiations between the ANC and the government. It was only when Cyril later met Mandela face to face that his understanding 
of the prisoner's strategy was transformed. Despite his now exhausting range of commitments to the wider struggle movement, Ramaphosa was continually engaged in the battles the NUM was fighting against its mining house adversaries. One of these fights, in the conservative mining town of Valcom, led him into unexpected contact with the notorious mastermind behind the bombing of Kosatu House, Law and Order Minister Adrian Flock. Valcom was a town forever on the verge of racial violence. The town's population of 65,000 whites was segregated from ten times that number of blacks living in hostels or the nearby township of Tabong by segregated residential and social spaces and a de facto curfew for Africans. In the course of 1989 and 1990, violence across racial lines escalated at a frightening rate. Whites and blacks were attacked and killed in racial assaults on the streets and in the mine compounds. A bomb was exploded at the local NUM office. Tabong residents boycotted white-owned businesses. After the death of a white mine manager and security guard at the President Stain Mine, right-wing groups including the Afrikaner Weerstandbeweging, AWB, and the vigilante group Blanke Veiligheid, organized a boycott of wholesalers to prevent food reaching Tabong. We will starve the Kaffirs into submission, the BV leader explained. In an attempt to defuse the situation that was likely to bring production at its mines to a halt, Anglo-American called an emergency meeting between the Chamber of Mines, the NUM, Kosatu, the White Unions, the Defence Force and Adrian Flock. Ramaphosa drove down to Valcom from Johannesburg with James Motlatsi and Kosatu General Secretary Jay Naidu. A fourth passenger in the car describes their experience on arriving in Valcom. White vigilantes were patrolling the streets of Valcom, but as we approached the town, Ramaphosa suggested that, instead of going straight to the meeting place, we should drive slowly through the centre so as to see the situation for ourselves. Naidu said, OK, but slow down so that I can have my last cigarette. The drive went off without incident and the union leaders arrived safely at their meeting with the Minister of Law and Order. Free State NUM leaders joined them for the closed-door discussions and eventually an agreement was hammered out to prevent any further escalation in the violence. The police committed themselves to desist from their campaign of harassment and to refrain from joining mine security in attacks on black mine workers. Norm agreed to stop further threats of violence against white mine workers. Flock's role was primarily one of facilitation. A few weeks later, Ramaphosa and Motlatsi met Flock in Pretoria for a follow-up meeting on the state of the truce in the Free State town. On this occasion, Flock had a large file on the desk in front of him. Flicking through it, he remarked to Ramaphosa, I was not aware that your father is a policeman after Cyril commented, he was a policeman. Flock commended the sergeant, Samuel Ramaphosa, on his career. With an incredulous Motlatsi looking on, but with Cyril's face arranged in its usual dispassionate calm, Flock handed Ramaphosa a pair of police cufflinks with the words, your father had an exemplary service record. Although he was never a high-profile UDF leader, Ramaphosa was an important political firefighter in Soweto. Two of his many interventions were especially significant, one for its positive impact on the welfare of Soweto's people and the other for its negative impact on Cyril's own later political fortunes. His first initiative was in resolving Soweto's long-standing and well-organized rates and rent boycott. The boycott was quite unlike the spontaneous and unsustainable community protests then breaking out across the country. In Soweto, civic activists had started organizing payments boycotts in 1986 and they sustained the campaign into the late 1980s. Eventually the finances of Soweto municipalities became critically drained and provincial resources had to be used to bail them out. By 1989, debt had reached the equivalent of a hundred million US dollars and there was no sign of a resolution in sight. Ramaphosa took up the issue as spokesman for a group of local associations 
called the Soweto People's Delegation, an ideological descendant of the Committee of Ten. In what was in some respects a continuation of the Committee's 1976 battle, the educated and organized members of the Soweto community, seeking fairness and the ability to organize their own affairs, had faced off against the intractable bureaucrats of the Transvaal administration. For many exiles and non-Soweto activists, this was the Committee of Ten at work once again, but now under the auspices of the UDF. In 1989, the delegation commissioned watershed research that demonstrated that Black Soweto was subsidizing White Johannesburg. The white city's commerce depended on black labor, yet the city contributed nothing to the Soweto services those workers consumed. The delegation demanded one city, one tax base, a rationale and slogan that became the rallying cry of township activists throughout South Africa. Ramaphosa began 14-hour daily negotiations with provincial government and Soweto's council officials in October 1989, eventually hammering out a settlement. Government agreed to cancel arrears, charge a flat utility service fee, and take steps towards creating a unified city administration. It was also agreed that the houses the people of Soweto had stayed in all their lives would be transferred to them. They would at last receive freehold title. Inferior services, Ramaphosa observed, would have to be addressed through a resolution of the wider problem of racial division. A multiracial central Witwatersrand metropolitan chamber was formed to take practical steps to solve the city's problems. In all this, Ramaphosa took a major political risk to achieve concrete results for his own community. He appeared to see the ability to secure a favorable bargain as the consequence of a successful strategy of ungovernability. The representatives of the regime could no longer govern. Exiles campaigning for ungovernability, however, saw the settlement as tantamount to selling out. Many of them were unable at that stage to make a transition from the symbolic politics of opposition to the constructive effort of institution building. The Metropolitan Chamber's creation contradicted the ANC's demand that local government reform should occur only as part of national transformation. Among other reasonable concerns, the ANC feared that the National Party would be able to make inroads into a potential black electorate by effecting local-level changes in advance of the first democratic elections. What the Chamber's complex committee system did was to bring together civic organizations and government officials in an environment of practical problem-solving. More than a thousand activists, consultants, engineers and counselors were ultimately involved. As one observer noted, White bureaucrats typically saw these civic activists as communist-inspired anarchists, hell-bent on overthrowing the government and installing a Stalinist regime. For their part, the activists considered the bureaucrats to be extensions of the apartheid apparatus. After months of painful acrimony, the two sides began to better understand the real constraints facing the other side. Frederick von Selslabert, who became the chamber's chairman, observed that the civic associations came into the chamber with foam in the mouth and the provincial government came in accustomed to saying take it or leave it. After a while the civics began to appreciate the complexities of administration and the province began to understand that there was a real crisis of legitimacy in township government. For Slabert this solution would have been impossible without Ramaphosa. Cyril was the one negotiator who was able to deliver. A second high-profile Soweto issue of national significance into which Ramaphosa was drawn was how to contain the human and political damage being done by Winnie Mandela, the increasingly unpredictable wife of Nelson. Winnie's sponsored gangsterism and general disregard for ANC discipline were tolerated because of her special status and popularity within the movement. As ever, the ANC was keen to cover up the misdeeds of its most prominent members. Yet Mandela's football club, an unruly gang of bodyguards and thugs, was so undisciplined and relentless in its violence and intimidation that local community organizations and international journalists were together exposing its actions with potentially damaging implications for the ANC. Matters came to a head over the murder of a child who was last seen in the hands of Winnie's gangsters.
Saki Makazoma, an organizer with the South African Council of Churches in the late 1980s, recalls that Winnie was on the rampage. She would not listen to criticism. She would say, you boys, what do you know? I take my instructions directly from Lusaka. The SA Council of Churches was a substantial force within the UDF and its leadership took upon itself the task of bringing Winnie under control. This was a task the exile leadership seemed too feeble to contemplate. The SACC sent Makazoma on a mission to Lusaka in 1989 to brief Oliver Tambo and the exile leadership on Winnie's behavior and attitude. Tambo quickly and predictably hit the ball back into the SACC's court, placing upon the Soweto civic establishment the moral duty to limit her actions and safeguard the ANC's international reputation. Frank Shikani and Cyril were both drafted on to the Mandela Crisis Committee, created to take the strategy forward. The committee worked assiduously, and with some success, to isolate Winnie within the UDF, to rein in the worst excesses of her followers, and to discourage the patronage of foreign funders. Winnie herself was never to forgive those who had ostracized and contained her, later describing them as an undemocratic cabal, bent on destroying her influence in the movement. She was repeatedly to attack this group over coming years, in the 1991 trial on charges related to kidnapping and murder, and in the following years, when her purported lover, Dalim Porfu, was removed from his ANC position, and Nelson Mandela dissolved their marriage. Along with Ramaphosa and Shikani, this so-called cabal contained much of the more moderate and capable national leadership of the UDF, including Murphy Morobi, Eza Kachalia, and Vali Musa. For an ambitious politician in the early 1990s, Winnie Mandela was a dangerous enemy. She would never be reconciled to Cyril's rise to leadership, and she probably influenced others, for example in the Youth League, to campaign against him. Yet Cyril's involvement brought him popularity among the wider majority of ordinary Soweto residents who had long since tired of Winnie's arrogance and casual brutality. In addition, it drew him closer to the Mandela family and later helped to cement his relationship with Nelson Mandela. At the end of this brutal decade, Kusatu and the UDF became increasingly close. The UDF had survived government harassment in the mid-1980s and weathered the 1985 Delmas treason trial of key leaders Terra Lakota and Popo Malefe. In February 1988, however, the government massively stepped up its pressure, effectively banning the UDF and introducing substantial restrictions on the movement and activity of almost all its leaders. Only Kosatu's organizational and financial resources could fill the vacuum left by banned and restricted UDF campaigners. Activists on both sides began to call for a unified mass democratic movement and in 1989 this new formation came into existence. The Mass Democratic Movement or MDM was an amorphous entity that could not be subject to banning or restrictions. In two major conferences, Conference for a Democratic Future and From Opposing to Governing, Members of this new grouping began to look to a post-apartheid future. There was a sense of anticipation in the air, but no one guessed that fundamental change was just around the corner.